Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We are going through a series together as we begin this new year about strength from a biblical perspective, or as Paul says, how to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and to see what the elements of strength, in terms of spiritual elements of strength, have to come together for you to be strong, because life has this tendency of exposing you, that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to come into conflict with both people and circumstances, and what's going to happen in that is not that those people or circumstances are going to produce the weakness, they're going to reveal the weakness. And so today, we want to talk about particularly, what does it mean to have the strength of a healthy heart? What's the sickness that destroys our strength? And then what's the cure for that sickness? So we're going to look at together at Philippians chapter 2. And as we read this together, we looked at this in terms of the name of Jesus. But now we're going to go back and we're going to unpack what it has to say about how Jesus' strength becomes your strength. And what I'd like you to think about here, and, and it may be a new way of thinking, but there is a strength that exalts you. But in order for the strength to exalt you, you have to overcome the sickness that destroys you. So the will of God is for you to be exalted. But sometimes your own will, and sometimes the will of the enemy, is to destroy, to steal, and to kill. So we want to look at this together, and we want to find and unpack the element of strength. So will you read this with me? I like it when the church reads God's word out loud. I think there's power in that. So let's read that together. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the sickness that destroys our strength is called pride. So here in these verses... Paul is speaking to the church. And he's saying there's a pride issue in the church. And he's calling out the symptoms of the pride. 
But he's saying the root issue is this sickness of heart. And so he says there's conflicts, there's fights, there's everything but a unified community. And what, he, what, he's, what he's really giving the principles of, friends, is not just the issue of the church, but the issue of family, the issue of marriage, the issue of friendship, is that when there's conflict and when there's fighting and there's competition and there's you know, backstabbing and, and lack of faithfulness to your word and all of these things, when that's going on, when, when you live in offense and, and, and a sense of bitterness, it's not, it's not just because there's something wrong with the world. It's because there's something wrong with you. And so here's what I, I see happening quite often, particularly in the church, is instead of going after the sickness, we try to get a technique. Okay, here's how you resolve conflict. <laughs> and most of the techniques are basically lose-lose. You know, you compromise this and you negotiate that, but you never really look at the real issue of the heart. We're almost so afraid to offend one another by saying you have a pride issue. No, you, well, let's just say you have a methodology issue. Or let's have a technique. Look, if the sickness is sin, then there's no methodology that's going to make sin any less sinful. And so Paul says, when he is dealing with conflict, listen, <laughs> almost every one of Paul's letters was written to a church in conflict. Everyone, if you look at them. And here's what he says. It's not a methodology. It's not a technique. It's a heart issue. And he says the heart issue and the thing wrong with the heart that's keeping you from strength is selfish ambition, he says, and vainglory, which are the two characteristics of pride. Now, before we unpack these two a little bit more, I, I just want to remind you about your heart and what the biblical description of the heart is. Some people think the heart is just it's the seat of emotions. And so many times people will dismiss the heart as unimportant because they think the emotions are unimportant. The Bible says the heart is not just the seat of emotions. It says it's the control center of your being. Let me, let me illustrate that. Your heart could be pictured as the vault of your soul. It's the place where you keep what you have deemed to be valuable. It's the place where you have decided, this is true and I believe it. When you know something and you know that you know something, you hide it in your heart. It's a vault. It's put there. So what you believe, what you really believe is in your heart. What you trust, what you rely on, what you depend on is in your heart. Therefore, everything you're truly committed to is in your heart. So God is after your heart. Many of us are deceived in our hearts. So we say things that we believe, but we have no practice to back it up. So you say, oh, you know, it's important to be a prayer person. So I'm committed to prayer. But then we look at your schedule and there's no prayer. So therefore, your heart has said, I don't have time for prayer. 
So I'm really committed to work. Or I'm really committed to something else. Because your time schedule will reveal what your true heart commitment is. If you say, I, oh, I'm a generous person. But every time there's a chance for generosity, you go, well, maybe I better save that. Because I, I don't want to lose my security. i got to have a buffer. And so I can't be generous till I have enough for me. So then your, your mouth is saying, I'm generous. But your heart is saying, I want to protect myself. And the commitment is to protection. See, God is not fooled by your protestations. He is not fooled by your, you know, by your claims. So what he's doing is he's going after your heart. But he has a curriculum. And the curriculum pressures your heart to manifest. People come into your life. They make you manifest. Circumstances come in your life. They make you manifest. And so what he's doing is not embarrassing you, but he's making you realize that you have a heart sickness. And that unless he gets at the sickness, it doesn't matter how many peacekeeping books you read, you will have conflict. Because the inner conflict will become outer conflict. So let's, you're like, boy, thanks for making me fight the parking and come for that. <laughs> so Paul says... Pride is summed up in this word, vainglory. And so, since I spent a lot of money at seminary, I'm going to teach you a little Greek today. All right? So, so the word he uses is a single word in Greek, but we have to use two words in English to translate it. And it's, it's, it's the word kino and doxa. So the word kino means to empty or to be emptied. This is an important word. So, to be emptied, or to be empty, and doxa means glory. So what he says is that when you look at your heart realistically, and you're honest about your heart, you have a glory-empty heart. So it is empty of glory, but then he uses another word, and he says, but you have selfish ambition which means you also have a glory-hungry heart. So you have a glory-empty heart that is coupled with a glory-hungry heart. And that is where your pride and your sickness of pride resides in your heart. I, I am empty of glory, but I'm hungry for glory. And there are a lot of people and we'll say, well, you know, I'm not glory hungry, but see, when you, when you say a, a thing about yourself and you say, I don't count, I don't matter, no one cares for me, what you're saying there is I am glory empty. So you may be hiding that you're glory hungry, but your statements are revealing that you're glory empty. And there is no way the human heart, which is glory empty, will not be glory hungry. And so what happens is I begin to try to figure out how to get glory. And it could be negative attention. It could be positive attention. 
could be all kinds of stuff. It could be that I, I have to have the best degree from the best university. It could be that I have to have a certain amount of money. It has to be that I have a certain beauty or a certain strength or whatever it is. But that glory hungry results in I want glory. I want respect. I want honor. Now, you have to understand what the Bible's talking about when it talks about glory here. And you have to understand why glory is so important and why it's so important to face that we're glory empty and that we're glory hungry. So I got an analogy for, for you for glory. Lisa is doing a retreat, speaking at a retreat in California. So yesterday I binged on Netflix. And uh, <laughs> she won't let me watch but like two. I want to watch them all. So I was watching a bunch of this one show that's set back in the 1700s. And there's, there's, these, there's these incredibly outcast people. They're, they're impoverished. They're poor. They have no means of, of having any riches whatsoever. But they stumble across through, through, through a crime. They stumble across a, a huge treasure of gold bars. But because they're so poor, they cannot believe that it's really gold. So they pick it up, and you realize they're, they're, they're testing the weight of it. Does it have weight? Is it substantial? They look at it closely, and they're like, is it beautiful? Does it shine? Does it glitter like gold? And then even though they've weighted it, and they see the beauty of it, they still don't believe, so one woman puts it in her mouth and bites it. Well, I don't know about you, but I've gotten gold bars and they had chocolate in the middle, you know. <laughs> Couldn't spend them. So they bite it and they, they go, it's real. That's glory, friends. It has weight. It has substance. It's beautiful. As a matter of fact, the more it is itself, the more beautiful it is. You see, you can, you can refine gold. It gets more beautiful. It doesn't become less so. It becomes more so. And it is always real. Even the fire does not transform gold into something else. It stays gold. And this is what your soul is empty of and what it's hungry for. You want something that has weight so you can withstand the storms. You want something beautiful so it has worth, it has significance, but you also need it to be real. Which means it isn't just here today and gone tomorrow, but it's permanent. That's glory. And that's what you were made for. And so what happens to us is that, and philosophers talk about this a good bit, is that it's okay it's okay if people love you that can at least somewhat satisfy that hunger glory, but it's also okay if they hate you because at least they care enough to hate you. <laughs> but what's really scary and what's the worst of all is if they ignore you because then you don't matter. You don't even matter enough for them to hate you. You know, even if they have a website against you, praise God. They're going out of the way to show you have glory. But if they ignore you and they forget you, 
Now I'm hopeless. Now I'm powerless. And I've done a study because it has become more and more apparent the level of abuse that almost everybody goes through. As I counsel with people, the percentages of people sexually abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused, physically abused has gone up so much in my 36 years of of ministry. And I'm not just talking about in America. I'm talking about everywhere I go in the world. And so I've studied and I've tried to understand. And what I've found is so interesting. The abusers believe they're unimportant. The abusers believe they're powerless. And they believe the one they're abusing actually has the power. So they try to take the power away from them, either by violating them or doing violence to them. You see, this issue of pride is dangerous. Because you were made by God to never be forgotten. But see, once we turn from God who remembers us, then no one really remembers you. You are forgotten. So this hunger, because we've turned away from the one who never forgets us, this hunger becomes obsession, becomes neurosis, becomes psychosis, becomes all kinds of things. Because you're glory empty, you are glory hungry. And this pride is basically trying to grab God's status for oneself. One of the best ways to see this, one of the clearest ways to see this, is to look at your worries. Look at the places where you're anxious. What you're basically saying is, I know what needs to happen next. I know how people need to act. I know what needs to take place for the right thing to take place, for the responsible thing to take place. And what you're doing is, I know what God should be doing. Which means you've kicked him off the throne and you've put yourself on the throne. Which is the very sin of the first rebel. I will set my throne above God's throne. Anxiety is basically a criticism of God. I know what's best. And out of it and from it, it's really this thing that you don't really realize, but it can be very petty in a way where you're saying, I need to count. I need to matter. I need to be unforgettable. And so then you organize your world in such a way that the only people in your life are people that are contributing to you counting which is basically using other people for your own glory. And you can see it if you see the people you've dismissed from your life. And you see the people that you've had conflict in your life. Usually it's because they didn't have the same image of you that you have of you. You're like, wow, I really wish I hadn't come today. So as we look at this sickness of pride, we have to start kind of bringing in what's the cure? How do I cure this sickness? Because I'm going to tell you very specifically, the more you focus on your pride, the more prideful you'll become. Because you'll make your pride bigger than anything else. It's just like the more you make your pain 
bigger than Jesus and more real to you than Jesus, then you'll have no glory to overcome your pain. Because He's always bigger than your pain. But if you've made your pain more, more important, more powerful than Jesus, then you have deceived yourself. And there is no comfort in deception. And there's no strength in it. So how does Jesus teach us to deal with this issue of our hearts? Do you notice what he says in the Sermon on the Mount? He doesn't say, consider your pride. No, he says, consider the lilies. Oh, that doesn't make sense to us, right? It feels indirect. Well, I'm trying to give you a key to overcoming pride, and that is that you have to go at it indirectly. You have to recognize it's there. You have to acknowledge that it's an issue. But then to go after it or to, be over, to overcome it, you have to begin to consider something other than yourself. So he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory. Notice the word glory here? Was not arrayed like one of these. So let's, I don't know if you like lilies or you like other flowers, but, but there is something about flowers. That when you see them, you immediately see the beauty of them. And because of that beauty, you can't help but think these have some weight to them. They have some substance. As a matter of fact, in some ways, seeing flowers gives you hope. Because there's something beauty even in the roughest of times. And so here we also see that there's a very big difference between real flowers and fake flowers. For me, if I smell a fake lily, doesn't bother me at all. I smell a real lily, I go into anaphylactic shock. So, I mean, I've had worse Easter's with lined up lilies just destroying me. So you'll see at Easter, we don't really have a lot of lilies near Mike because I can't, I can't take the real. They're so real. They're so real. You understand? Can you get this in your head with me? That which you want, that which you were made for, has to be weighty. There has to be an investment beyond your work. There has to be something of design in you that matters. You have to realize you want to be beautiful. You might say, I want to be handsome, or you might say, I want to be strong, but it's, there's this desire that it be beautiful. But there's this deep desire that it be real. That it be something you can count on every single day. And what Jesus says, look at the investment of my father in a lily. And he loves you more than any lily. Look at the investment of my father in a lily. He has more design for you than even for that lily. But you see, here's the thing. If you keep looking at, well, how good am I? How hard do I work? And am I going to be okay? You're not looking to the investment of the Father. You're just looking at the deficits that you see in your life. And those are not glorious. So I've been reading a book on humility by a woman by the name of uh, Hannah Anderson. And it's an excellent book. And I, I wanted to share an excerpt with you. She She's writing about the, the issue of, of, of pride and how it shows up in worry. 
And she's being very vulnerable, and she gets this great opportunity to go to the very place where Jesus preached that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And she's sitting on the hillside where the sermon was preached, and she's looking around, and she says, there's just this sea of beautiful flowers. And so here's what she writes as she meditates on Jesus' words. She says, farmers and fishermen, mothers and fathers, grandparents and grandchildren left their work to gather at Jesus' feet. And as he spoke, he was blessing them, the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful. And she says, I could see him stretching out his hand, motioning to the birds in the air and the flowers growing at their feet. And he says to them, do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Now, this is important that you get this part. He says, I was in this peaceful place. It was so serene. It was exactly the kind of place you could leave your troubles and your burdens. Now, get what she's saying here. She's in a field of flowers, and she's like, here I could give up my anxiety. Here I could trust Jesus, because it's nothing but flowers. Got it? And she says this. Well, she walks a little bit on the hillside, and covered by the flowers are anti-aircraft tanks made by Russia. And she writes this. The hillside where we sat had once been part of the disputed border between Israel and Syria. During the 1960s, Syrian guerrillas backed by the Soviet Union had shelled the kibbutzim and towns at its base. The people of those towns, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, knew difficulty. But even in times of relative peace, they were real people. People who carried the burdens of relationships, work, family life, and personal frustration. People who knew stress. People who, like me, struggled to sleep at night. Jesus understood. Small things can unsettle us more than large things. So when he called the people of Galilee to leave their anxiety, when he calls us to do the same, he does so in context of very ordinary concerns. Do not be anxious about your life, he assures them. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. This is such a powerful passage to me because I, I realize that I have more trouble with the small things than I do the big things. One, because the small things are constant. And because in some ways, there's a, there's a way that we think, at least maybe it's the way I think, if I can't handle the small things, how will I handle the big things? And so the power source for many of us to handle anything is fear. Because fear gives us focus. Fear gives us a sense of responsibility. But Jesus is saying, you don't need to get to an idyllic place to get rid of your fear. You don't need to get to a place where you have nothing to fear anymore to get rid of your anxiety. He's saying, look at the birds. They eat. They're beautiful. They have a place to sleep. They do so because the Father provides. Now, in case you're one of those who just wants to be an irresponsible person and call it faith, I never see, I never see a bird on a limb with a Bible verse saying, you know, saying I'm going to be fed. 
I see the birds flying. I see them going after worms. I see them feeding their young. I see all of these things. And what Jesus is saying, all of that is the investment and provision of the Father. It's not that you just wait and hope you'll have weight. You hope you'll have substance. It's not that you just wait and hope you'll be beautiful. But you have to start out by saying, I'm not weighty. I'm not beautiful. I'm not real. But Jesus is. And once His glory becomes settled glory for you, then you'll say, He will give me to eat. I will have plenty to drink. He will make sure my body is okay. He will take care of my clothes. He will give me a place to lay my head. But as long as you are glory hungry, out of your glory emptiness, all you'll have is anxiety. And here's the thing I've learned about anxiety. That even the thing you're worried about, when it doesn't come to pass, the worry doesn't go away. Because it was never about the thing. It was about your pride. It was about your heart sickness. So you can deal with symptoms all day, or you can go after the root of the issue. So what I began to do is try to get some diagnostics so that you can look at this thing that's in you that's stealing your strength. And Jonathan Edwards is uh, one of the great leaders of the Great Awakening back in the 1700s. And one of the greatest revivals that ever took place. And he said, the enemy, not of, only of your strength, but of your spiritual growth is pride. And here's, here's what the definition of humble or humility is in the scriptures. It's a gentleness that when you are provoked, what comes out of you is gentleness. When you are provoked, what comes out of you is modesty. So think about this. When someone... When you have conflict or someone is challenging you, is your first response gentle? When, when you're having an argument, have, maybe you've never said this. Has anybody ever said to you, though, why do you make everything all about you? And maybe you've never had anybody say that, but maybe you've said this to someone you're having conflict. Why do you make everything about you and maybe you don't say this, but you're thinking, when it all should be about me. <laughs> Many of us have an exaggerated view of ourselves that comes out as people have conflict with that exaggerated view. An exaggeration can be both, you know, aggressive and it can be passive. The exaggerated view could be you're the greatest thing ever. I don't want to comment on, on the whole Kanye West thing. But I did have a little problem when he said he was the greatest artist that God has ever given to the earth. That's pretty, I don't know, I won't go there. An exaggerated view of self is an issue of pride. So what happens is it manifests, Edwards says, in these four ways you can diagnose. 
The first way, he says, is that there is a drivenness that isn't just that you want to be the best you, but it's rather you want to be better than other people. So this is the issue of pride. It's not that you have a heart for excellence or you want to do things well or you want to express yourself well. That's actually a very healthy thing. But when your measurement of how well you've done is how well you've done against other people. Lewis says it this way. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. It only gets pleasure by having more than others. So that you look and say, I have won. I have more toys than you. Is this hitting too close to home, I guess? You guys are getting quiet there. So the, 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 the second one here is the idea of scornfulness. So here's a, this is an old-fashioned term. It comes out of Psalm 1, sitting in the seat of scoffers or the scornful. In other words, that you have put yourself in a judgment seat of cynicism, and skepticism. Sometimes in our society, when we consider someone cool, we consider them cool because they have disdain for everything. Because they don't allow themselves to feel. They don't allow themselves to be vulnerable. Will you just hear me on this? If you can't be vulnerable, you can't be intimate. Because pride is self-protective. And when pride is protecting you, it doesn't allow anybody else inside your force field or your shield so that you can feel them in your life. It's, it, it's something we learned, many of us learned in, in school, that if I attack others first, they won't be able to attack me. If I scorn you, if I'm sarcastic with you, I can keep you at a distance if I put you down faster than you put me down, then I'm not going to be hurt by you. So it's interesting. Uh, one of our members was telling me a story one time. And I think it was a, a birthday party. And, and, and the children were at this party. And the host had provided cookies. And there was a woman there speaking to her daughter. Get the big cookie. Get the biggest cookie. You deserve the big cookie. And the sister who was telling me the story, like me, grew up in the South. So in the South, you would never say to your child, go get the big cookie. You would never say that. Because you're going to have great pleasure at talking about the one who did get the big cookie. Can you believe her? And you'll have, a, you'll have a discussion in the parking lot. You'll call people on the phone. She's already fat and she got the biggest cookie. <laughs> Glory empty. Glory hungry. Either way, you see... The, the glory could be above the table, or the glory could be under the table. But I'm going to reveal my pride about a cookie. Are you hearing me? 
one of the issues with pride that is, comes up as you diagnose is a thing called willfulness. And so this willfulness is that as a spiritually prideful person, you're absolutely sure that you are right. That you could never be wrong. And it manifests in relationship in that you have to convince others of how right you are no matter what. And so when you are wrong, you cannot admit it. And when you have hurt someone, you cannot extend an apology. I love the apologies of the willful. If I hurt you, I'm like, that doesn't really apologize, friends. I love the other one. I owe you an apology. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> you understand, if you look at your life and it's hard for you to apologize, that's sin sickness. That's vain glory. That's hunger for glory. It's not just something you manage. It's something you have to realize is a cancer in your soul. Now this leads to this last one, which is probably the most important. He talks about self-consciousness. Now you're going to have to listen to me because this is a little bit complicated. It is important, friends, to become self-aware. It is important to be conscious. There is a season in your life where the Holy Spirit will make you focus on yourself for a while. But the goal isn't self-consciousness. The, vo- the goal actually is self-forgetfulness. Is that you get so settled in what Jesus is saying about his glory in you that you're settled about, I'm going to have a place to live. I'm going to have clothes to wear. I'm going to have, I'm going to have good health. I'm going to have something to eat. I'm going to have something to drink. Not because of my glory hunger, but because of the glory of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ. And what that does is it allows you to settle self into a place that produces peace and joy, even if the circumstances are not easy, even if there are anti-aircraft tanks in your flowers. But this issue of self-consciousness, a lot of us don't even get at all how self-conscious we are. Shyness, self-consciousness. Having to be the center of attention, self-consciousness. Having to be louder than everybody else. Having to be quieter than everybody else. All self-consciousness. Here's the issue. When something is working well, you forget it. When something is broken, you can't help but be conscious of it. I don't get up in the morning and tell Lisa, Hey, Lisa, my elbow's working. Praise Jesus. My elbow's working today. Oh, boy. But if I hurt my elbow, if I bruised it, if I hurt it, if there's pain in my elbow, I might test it every day. Is my elbow okay? I'm only conscious of my elbow because I've had brokenness in my elbow. Because I've had pain in my elbow. So you're only conscious of self because of the brokenness of self. And it's important you get this. I've said it before. (laughs) Our egos are broken. Our sense of self is disordered. But we don't really like to face that. So you hurt my feelings. I'm going to say you hurt my feelings, right? Particularly in New York. 
In uh, Mississippi, we just call other people. <laughs> but here, you will go up to someone's face, and that hurt my feelings. Do you understand feelings can't be hurt? I have destroyed love for all time. No, love can't be destroyed. I have hurt joy at the core. No, you can't destroy joy. So what are you really saying? You hurt my ego. I had a view of myself, and you don't share my view. So pride becomes a bulldog to protect my view of myself. Don't criticize me. I'll let you have it. Don't point out my brokenness. I'm going to come after you. And you'll never do that again. And instead of realizing that's not healthy, we prop it up. We reinforce it. And so Edward says this is the issue of self-consciousness is that when we are broken, we are conscious of our broken places. So instead of examining that, we keep protecting it. And so what is the cure for this then? I said the first, the cure of, of Jesus was you don't consider your brokenness. You don't, you don't ignore it. You acknowledge it. But you begin to look for something outside of yourself to begin to reorder self and to bring healing to self. So Paul begins to talk about the humility of Jesus. So as Jesus says, consider the lilies, Paul says, consider Jesus. When Jesus was struck, he was gentle. So whatever pressured his heart produced a manifestation of gentleness. When he was attacked, he didn't say, this is all about me and you guys are all wrong. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he was going to the cross being treated unjustly, he didn't stop it. He said, no, this is for the good of everybody I die for. His heart was revealed when his conflict was the worst. So I'm saying to you, you can't work on humility by going at it directly. If you, if you go, I'm going to be humble, or you say, I'm not going to be prideful, what will happen is you'll develop false humility because what will happen is you'll have the appearance of humility. So one of my, one of my classes I, I taught at, 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 at NIAC had about 50, 60 students in it. And we were talking about pride and humility. And this one student raised his hand and said, Professor, when I preach a great sermon, I make sure that God gets all the glory. I was like, oh, you're full of crap. <laughs> Listen what he said to 60 other students. When I preach a great sermon, let me tell you, he had a tremendously exaggerated sense of self because that sermon sucked. <laughs> but he wanted everybody to know he was a great preacher. But I give God all the glory. You see, he wanted to have the appearance of humility. But all of us could read him and say, you don't have humility. Why are you even saying this? Except that you want attention. You want approval. You're glory hungry because you're glory empty. But, you know, I'm such a nice person that I said to him, do you think you fooled God? Because you're not fooling us. He was not happy with me. You understand, so many of us in our attempt to deal 
with our pride, we put on a false humility so that we have the appearance of humility, but we don't have true humility. I know this is kind of mean, but I, I, I think many of us are just Ikea Christians. We have a veneer of wood, but underneath it's sawdust. Because when you cut us, when you cut us, we don't bleed Jesus. So what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's trying to rip off the veneer. And he's trying to get you to the place where you understand there's a trajectory to humility and it's Jesus' trajectory. Look at Jesus. He left his glory. He chose to empty himself. Not, he didn't become not God. But he chose to become a servant. In the Roman culture, in the Greek culture, no one was gentle, no one was modest, no one treated others as more important than themselves except slaves. And so Jesus emptied himself and became one who had no advantages whatsoever. As a matter of fact, remember I told you the word of vainglory? empty glory is the word kino, doxa. So then Paul says, Jesus kenosis. Jesus emptied himself. So the glory filled one became glory empty. So that we who are glory empty might become glory filled. And he did this for you. And he did it for me. I mean, think about this. In Isaiah 53, it says, He emptied Himself of His glory and His beauty. If you had seen Him in heaven with His glory before He was incarnated, you would have been knocked out of your, off your feet by Him. So beautiful, so glorious, so weighty, so real. But the one who was glorious emptied Himself and became beatable, and they beat Him. He became rejectable, and they rejected Him. In other words... The only way up to exaltation is to go down to humiliation. To be rich is not glory. To give away your riches, glory. To be truly happy is when you really enjoy the happiness of others. When their wins are as pleasing to you as your wins. To rule is to serve. We have all these discussions about men and women and roles and and, and rights and all of these different things. But here's the thing. If I'm serving you because I choose to serve you, then I am actually exalting myself and you. But if I have to dominate you and intimidate you and control you and make sure you do what I want you to do, all that is is glory empty manifesting in glory hunger. And no relationship can withstand glory emptiness. And no person can withstand our glory hunger. It will make abuse. It will make oppression. It will make racism. It will make all these things because my glory hunger cannot allow you to have the glory I want for me. So the rule is to serve. Jesus emptied himself so you could be full. The one who was glory full became glory empty. So we who are glory empty might be glory filled. I love that. 
Tim Keller says it this way. He was treated as I deserve so that now I'm treated as he deserves. But would you, would you let this come in to Jesus? <laughs> I love this. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. You're his gold. You may think you're nothing, you're his gold. To him, you are weighty enough that he left heaven. To him, you're beautiful enough that he gives you all his beauty. To him, you're real enough that he wants to be with you forever. You, you're more than a lily. You're more than the birds. And God has invested glory in them. I want you to see the glory he's invested in you. Will you stand with me? Can you hear me today? Is this just for me? Everything in your life you cannot overcome can be traced back to glory empty and glory hunger. Every single thing. I can take it all the way down. Every fear you have is a glory hunger because you're glory empty. If you just say, I won't be prideful, you'll still be hungry and you'll still be empty. It's only when you begin to believe that you're more than a lily. You're more than the birds. That Jesus has proved that as you consider him. He who was the darling of heaven sees you as the darling of his heart. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm asking you to settle your glory today as best you can to settle your glory. Would you extend your palm out? He's asking you to lay down your anxiety. He could have come to earth with all the advantages of God. But he set aside those advantages because he wanted to carry every worry you have. He wanted to carry every anxiety, every outcome that you're hurting over, every wound, every, every expectation that's been disappointed. He wants to carry it. Vainglory, glory empty, glory hunger takes up a lot of space. I'm asking that you take those hurts, that you take those longings, that you take those worries, those fears, would you take them out of your heart and prophetically, spiritually, however, just, it's a vision from God. And he'll let you do it, and he'll help you do it. Would you put them in your hand? Because they're too heavy for your heart. They're not glorious. They're not filling you. And even if you get them all resolved, you'll still be glory empty. But he wants to be your glory filled. So would you say with me, I take this pain, these worries, these fears, and I place it in my hand. And I offer it to you, Jesus. He won't take it away if you hold on to it. Because that means you still want it. That means you're still defined by it. But if you're a child of God, you have glory.
not only has your status been changed, but he's come and become a resident in your heart. He's the divine resident in your heart. There's glory in your heart. It's weighty. It will withstand the storms. It's beautiful. It will only get more beautiful as it's refined. And it's real. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. So I'm asking you, I know this is kind of strange, but I see Jesus moving in our midst. And he'll take every bundle of pain, worry, and care that you have that you're willing to give up today. He's moving right between the chairs. He's moving right in front of you. And everywhere you are saying, I'm making space, he's taking that and he's filling the space. And you might say to me, but I'm asking him, look, if he who was glory filled emptied his glory, now you who are glory empty, it's exactly what he wants to do is glory fill you. It's not a question of how much faith you have. You just have to accept that it's true. He has filled me with glory. And I've got to tell you, friends, it's so much better than anxiety. Anxiety just leaves more hunger and leaves me empty. But His glory fills me. Let Him fill you with His glory today. Settle this issue. He knows your wounded ego. And if you're saying to me, but I'm so prideful, how can He love me? His love is activated by your pride. He died for the sick, not the well. The gospel is not for the people who have it all together. The gospel is for people who can't get it all together. <laughs> Do you understand? The only negative emotion that will damn you forever is pride. Because it's pride that God opposes. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the appropriate time, he will exalt you. This is the strength that exalts you. Would you let him have it? Let him have it. Let him have that space. Believe him today for his glory. Would you just say with me very simply, I receive, I receive your glory, glory for my health, for what I eat and drink, for where I sleep, for what I wear, for where I'm going. Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.